our process has really um, evolved in response to what we found is uh, you know the best the best way to facilitate organizational change, which is to have people have a hand in shaping their own future. And that that theory of change, you know, that it, it has to be participatory, that it has to be agile with lots of testing and experimenting and prototyping, um, and that it has to be both kind of visionary and practical, um, that really resonates with higher ed. Welcome to another episode of The Wonder Podcast. This is CCB, your host, um, broadcasting from some room and some shelter-in-place environment here during our adventures with COVID-19. And I don't mean to make light of it, but we all know that we're, we're someplace that we maybe don't work on a regular basis. I'm delighted to introduce our guests for today, who we found through connected channels, and Elliot Felix spends a lot of time developing strategy for higher education. And that's going to be a very, very broad scope of strategy that he's going to spend an enormous amount of time sharing with us. Elliot, welcome, and tell us a little bit about your career path in design, if you would. Well, thanks for inviting me and good to be here. And uh, um, I'm also someplace where I'm not working normally and uh, feeling incredibly lucky to have family and friends safe and healthy and um, uh, be in a setting where, um, you know, where we can have this, have this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um my, you know, in terms of how we got here, uh, in, a, in some ways, it's a function of, I guess, two realizations. Epiphanies is probably too strong a word, but I, uh, I started out as an architect, and um, and I really, I really enjoyed architectural education. It helped me think in terms of systems and holistically, and present ideas and come up with ideas and and be a better communicator, and. Um, and uh, be a you know be a, a kind of a curious lifelong uh, learner and lateral thinker. So that was all great. And then I worked for uh, I worked for four or five years, and that was great too. Except I felt like a lot of the times we as architects were doing a great job solving the wrong problem because it hadn't been very well defined. There there wasn't a good brief. And, uh, and so I went back to grad school with the hope of tr- trying to close that gap um, of understanding and um, landed at a company called DEGW and uh, because uh, Frank Duffy, the, the D in DGW, uh, was, was teaching at MIT at the time. And what we did is write design briefs. So we did the, you know, did the research um, looked at the competitive landscape, talked to people, surveyed people, um, observed spaces, ran the numbers, and uh, and we framed the problem to be solved. And so that was that was a, a great way of kind of acting on that first realization of like, are we solving the right problem? And then um, after four or five years at DGW, 
what I realized is that uh, it's really hard and and probably a bad idea to change just your space. Um, It might even be impossible. And so uh, the the clients that I was working with um, seemed to realize that too. And so they just didn't, they didn't want just a strategy for changing their space. They wanted a, a strategy for changing their um, services and, uh, and their staffing as well. And so um, I founded Brightspot nine years ago with that idea of this integrated transformation of spaces, services, and staffing, um, because that's really what you need to change if you want to make people's experience better. Elliot, that's so fascinating. And I'm going to step back for a minute and say, you know, I did, I had a little interaction with DEGW myself when I worked with Accenture and understood the importance of not only the space, but how the people functioned in it. And then what all the resources were that uh, were attached to the space so that we had concierge systems and reservation systems set up to help our people move in and out. And that was through the collection of information from DEGW. For Brightspot, you started it with that, but did you start with the workplace world as customers? Well, when I was at DGW, I spent half my time, I, I was very lucky to, to work with on amazing projects with um, terrific clients and an awesome team. And I spent half my time working with tech companies that, of course, you can't say their name, um, but they were you know, they were great to, to help them think about their global portfolio and their work, the experience of their people and, and the role of, you know, space and attraction retention. And, um, and then the other half of my time I spent in higher education, uh, co-leading that sector and doing a lot of work, um, transforming libraries, for instance. And so when I started Brightspot, you know, I think we started off with roughly that you know, that same breakdown. And I think when we, when we started, we talked about it as, um, I think we said we were, our tagline was smart strategy for brighter work and learning environments or something to that effect. Um, you know, we've been pretty agile to, and listening to the market and updating, um, how we describe ourselves based on what's resonating with people and what people need and value. So I'm, I think that's like three taglines ago or four, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, we, 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 we started with that work and learning focus and, um, and then, and we did, you know, we did a, a variety of different um, uh, projects. We, you know, we also within learning, we did a lot of uh, interesting work with cultural institutions, um, uh, you know, including the SF MoMA's strategic plan for their transformation you know, as part of the expansion. And, um, and I think over the years, we felt like, uh, you know, higher ed grew to be a larger and larger part of our business. And um, maybe three years ago, we decided to focus exclusively on higher education, because we felt like that was really the best fit for our values, because we're all really driven by learning. And uh, we wanted to be a learning organization helping institutions of learning. And, uh, and it was also the best fit for our process because, you know, our process has really um, evolved in response to what we found is, uh, 
you know, the best, the best way to facilitate organizational change, which is to have people have a hand in shaping their own future. And that, that theory of change, you know, that it, it has to be participatory, that it has to be agile with lots of testing and experimenting and prototyping, um, and that it has to be both kind of visionary and practical, um, that really resonates with higher ed. So we found, you know, the best process and values fit. And that's also where we had the best, you know, reputation. And, um, you know, and now after nine years, we've worked uh, for 91 institutions and uh, helped, you know, improve the experience for millions of students. So it feels pretty good. I bet it does. So your... um... I'm going to ask a couple of questions, and I know that if uh, you can use a couple of your project as examples to answer these questions. Uh, one will be how many people work for the firm. Two will be an example of the process. Um, and three will be what types of deliverables do you turn over to your clients? So, if I if you take those three questions and talk about UC Berkeley's Academic Innovation Studio, could you explain how that works? Yeah, so I, Berkeley is um, uh, has been a has been a great has been a great client for us, and um, we we have a twelve person core team, and then we work with a network of of other folks to expand our capabilities and our and our uh, capacity, depending on, you know, the assignment and the workload. Um, but there's, a, you know, a core group of 12 of us. So we're, we're very much a, a hands-on kind of boutique. Um, and then we also work with, you know, a variety of partners, whether they're digital agencies or architecture firms or engineering firms um, or, you know, everything in between. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, that team, w- Generally, we have a kind of a mix of three different backgrounds, you know, architecture, social science, and business strategy. And some people have one or two of those or, th- or, or three. And um, I've just found, uh, I'm trained as an architect, um, and I've, I've just tried to make it a point to hire smart people that know things that I don't. And, um, and so we've, you know, we've, I think we've developed a pretty good breadth of expertise and, um, and backgrounds, but it, you know, it can always be, it can always be better. And the way we apply that to projects typically um, is, you know, is, is a three person, uh, three person team, a director, a senior strategist and a strategist, you know, probably with a different, you know, mix of skills and, and, and backgrounds that complement each other. And um, the, the academic Innovation Studios is an interesting example because it is, uh, it's an example of the convergence of online and on-campus uh, education or learning, I guess, more, more aptly, um, which is one of the big things we see, you know, in our, we, we wrote a white paper not too long ago about what we think higher ed looks like after COVID peaks. Um, and, uh, and I think that, you know, the thesis of that is that this is accelerating a lot of, you know, a lot of the changes that were already happening just at a, you know, an order of magnitude faster. So it's, you know, it's like 10, 
uh, or I guess maybe more than one order of magnitude. It's, you know, it's maybe 10, 10 years of change experienced in about 10 days mm-hmm. as courses moved online, services moved online, people moved to remote work. Uh, but one of the clear trends is the convergence of on campus and online. And that was already happening. Two thirds of students who were fully online enroll within 50 miles of home. Two thirds of students visit campus, you know, two thirds of online, online students visit campus at least once. Um, most online programs start with a in-person immersion so that you build relationships um, in person that then continue online. Of course, there's always exceptions to the rule, but, but on campus and online are, are, you know, they used to be pretty separate. They used to be done by different people, you know, enrolled different sorts of students and that's all blending together. And the academic innovation studio at Berkeley is, is a, is one of those points of intersection because it's the place where faculty come to redesign uh, an assignment or a class or a, or a degree program um, for, uh, uh, you know, for online or hybrid or, or blended learning. And so it's a place, it's a place, it's a space that's also a service. And that service uh, is, is about um, teaching and learning innovation. And so it's, you might meet with an instructional designer to rethink an assignment. You might meet with, um, with a, um, a media developer to think about, uh, you know, how you record a video uh, or an editor. You might meet with uh, a, uh, an, an analyst to understand how you're going to assess your, you know, your, um, your course in your students' learning. And, um, and so it's a place where all these services come together. And our role was to help accelerate that upfront thinking around what, you know, what's the kind of experience we're trying to create for faculty uh, who can then in turn help their students. What are the services that we need to provide? You know, what's the best space to accommodate those, um, those activities that create that experience and deliver those services. So I use the word so more often than I should. However, the service component of higher ed is it, it, it increases and the it increases as the the changes are taking place within the learning environment and i think it's important to note that your work embraces that knowledge that understanding that exploration and i thought about it when relative to another project of yours, which was the um, University of Michigan library strategy and the change that's taking place within service delivery in libraries up to today. And then what might be moving forward after, as we live with COVID-19. So I wonder if you could talk about that project specifically related to those, that service component. Yeah, I, I'd be happy to. And I think, I, I think the, the services that support faculty and students are a critical part of the experience on campus and, and online. And they are ripe for reinvention because I think 
what's happened is a lot of these services have grown by accretion as student as the the students have changed and as their needs have changed um the, you know the business of being a student has gotten more complex uh, more stressful harder to navigate and um and so in effect what you do is you end up with uh, a bunch of very well-meaning dedicated hard-working expert professionals that are scattered about uh digitally and physically and um and then that leaves a very sort of frustrating and fragmented student experience and on most campuses there is a there there's a, a moniker for this you know they call it the you know the the shuffle or the runaround or whatever mm-hmm. um with the university's name and then the shuffle and the runaround i'm i'm not going to name names <laughs> um but you know almost all of them have this have this kind of thing and so what we've tried to do more broadly uh, particularly in libraries is reimagine libraries as student service hubs or as student success hubs so that libraries can be this central place to bring together a variety of different services that are more efficient and effective to deliver because cost is definitely an issue St- you know student services the cost of student services is up uh, 22%, I think over the last, uh, 10, 10 years, um, you know, conservatively. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but at the same time, not only is it more efficient, it's much more effective for the student. Um, and so, you know, imagine going to a library and not only can you get help on the sources for your paper, but you can also get help on the data analysis and visualization in that paper you can also get help sharpening your thesis sent, uh, sentence or se- thesis statement and the writing um, and the structure from the writing center. And, oh, by the way, since, you know, you're writing fewer and fewer papers and you're doing more and more projects uh, so that you can get, a, you know, real world learning experience and solve projects that make an impact. Um, you can also get help writing the script or shooting the video or editing the video um, or, uh, you know, promoting it or posting it, publishing it, all these, all these things. And so the work we did at Michigan was, was, uh, very much about, uh, continuing that trajectory and trying to think about trying to work backwards from the student experience and think about the suite of services they need and then better, um, better communicate, better organize and better deliver those um, those services. And so go ahead. Oh, I was We just finished a project last year for uh, Santa Clara university school of law. And it was the library, which sat on top of a massive amount of more social services, more student common services, which mm-hmm. I thought was pretty interesting. And I wondered if you, if that was also a part of it. Yeah. I mean, I think part of, part of the logic of the, of library as student service hub is um, is is meet students where they are, and I think the you know digitally and and physically, and I, you know I think the the fundamental issue with student services at most institutions is they're based on two quite flawed assumptions. One is 
students know what help is available and the other is they're able to and comfortable asking for it. And we, you know, we tell people, you know, if you're waiting for students to ask all the questions they have or ask for all the help they need, you're going to be there for an awfully long time. And so what you have to do is kind of flip the model. And instead of saying, these, this is where you go to get help. And this is where you do to, where you go to study or to work on a project or work on an assignment. Uh, you want to actually overlap the two so that you remove the stigma against getting help. You know, there's nothing wrong with, you know, going for tutoring or talking to a mentor or getting help on that data analysis or sharpening your, your thesis in your paper. Um, so you want to like make it accessible. You want to remove the stigma um, and, uh, and you want to be more, much more proactive and, and do more, you know, do more outreach. And a big part of that is, is, you know, meeting people where they are. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that's a strategy we, you know, we use in really all our projects. I, you know, one of the, one of the, perhaps the most successful, we did a, a project at University of Virginia where they had a new, they had a desire to take a much more holistic approach to advising. And so we created a space actually within their library that, um, as part of that space brings together 24 different academic service providers, everybody from counseling and psychological services to their contemplative sciences center, to career services, to academic advising, uh, student financial services to get that, you know, more integrated support and to blend study and support in one, um, in one place. And, uh, and that's why, you know, we think about, space services and staffing together because you can't you know you can create this advising center where 24 different partners are going to share space and share ideas and share services but you also have to think about what that shared service model is and then you have to think about the staffing model um, of who, you know who's working there playing what roles um, and uh, and how they're all going to work together mm. so you 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 introduced the lightning rod of cost in that last conversation, cost of services. And you and I had that brief conversation earlier, but having watched Scott Galloway from NYU's Stern School of Business go on his rant at, uh, with Anderson Cooper and Sanjay Gupta was, was extremely explicit in the, the, um, in calling out the challenge to all higher ed given the cost of services and that return on investment. So you want to give me your perspective on that? Yeah, I'd be happy to. And I think, you know, that was an enlightening interview and uh, a lot of it didn't come as a surprise to me at least because he'd written something similar a month or so ago that, was actually one of the things we, you know, cited in our, in our web, uh, in our white paper, because I think his, his main point in the, in his post and in the interview is that the pandemic is accelerating things that were already here. I think the, the, um, 
price pressure, the financial pressure, the enrollment pressure, uh, the need to innovate, the need to partner, um, the, the, you know, the disruption from online education, those, those were all here. And, uh, and I, we, we tend to agree that this crisis is, is going to accelerate all those things. Um, it's going to decelerate other things like, you know, endowment gains and urbanization and travel and mass transit and study abroad and lots of other things. But by and large, it's going to accelerate things that were disrupting higher education. So I think that's a really good point. I think um, the the point about you know cost cost is is now unsustainable. I think is also a really good point. Um, I'm not sure how his like thirty his ninety percent margin calculation works, and I would love to learn more about that. But I I do agree that the cost is unsustainable. I mean the published tuition has gone up 3x among uh, public universities in 30 years and uh, 2x among private uh, private institutions over the last 30 years. And, you know, I think one thing that got my attention uh, on the presidential campaign, I mean, a- Andrew Yang was, you know, was often citing that and saying, you know, it's three times as expensive, but it's, it's definitely not three times as good. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that the the cost you know got to an has gotten to an unsustainable uh, level. We have a hundred. We have one point five uh, trillion student loan debt, and by and large, the playbook from the Great Recession isn't going to work again. I think in the in the Great Recession, a lot of universities did two things, neither of which they can do again. One is they shifted the financial burden from states to students by raising tuition. The other is that in doing that, they also became much more dependent on international students that generally are paying full price, whereas on average, you know, students are paying an, an, an average of uh, about 50% of the advertised price. That's the so- so-called discount rate. So whereas international students are paying, you know, mostly 100%. And so international enrollment has been declining. Um, It's going to be even harder for people to enroll uh, internationally in the fall. And students aren't going to be able to pay anymore. So I think there is a reckoning coming uh, as he he talks about. I think it's going to be a two-part reckoning where there are going to be uh, and I don't, you know, this isn't a, a unique point of view, uh, but there is going to be, you know, quite a few institutions that aren't going to make it and they weren't going to make it before because we already had oversupply. We already had, you know, more spots at colleges and universities than we need. Uh, just if you look at the demographics. Um, and so, you know, there were already lots of institutions at risk. Lots of analysis has already gone into this. Um, you know, there, there's a campuses at you know at, at risk uh, um, body of research. You know, most lots of people are saying ten to twenty percent are at risk, um, and you know, in the last five years, well over 150 nonprofit uh, 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 institutions have closed. So, the the first step of the reckoning is. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of places that are anchors in their community and providing jobs for people 
and helping lots and lots of students learn are going to go out of business. And then this second step of the reckoning is that the remaining institutions, unless they're elite institutions um, that admit, you know, 4% of their applicants and have massive endowments and therefore are sort of buffeted from these, these trends, they're going to have to uh, really restructure themselves uh, to be much more focused programmatically on the things that they can do and do well. They're going to have to partner with other people. Um, they're going to have to have a much more integrated approach to their, uh, to their staffing. They're going to have to curtail a lot of their uh, facility expansion and grow in place if they can grow and, you know, use their, you know, use their spaces much more efficiently and effectively over a much, you know, greater, um, period of time, you know, both hours in the day, days of the week, weeks of the year. Uh, and, um, and so it's, it's, I, I think in large part, uh, he's, he's right on. I think that, you know, the idea that the big four, uh, tech firms are going to, you know, merge with the universities um, feels a little bit, you know, because they have to double their market cap in five years. Um, that's maybe a, a little bit, a little bit out over the skis, but everything else I think seems, uh, seems pretty reasonable and certainly supported by all the data we've seen and, and, um, and gathered. Elliot, I am, so happy that you are committed to lifelong learning because you've chosen a path that's going to keep you in that mode, I'm certain, for most of your career. I want to point out that you do have, and we'll include this in our, uh, in our podcast information, but there's a great white paper that you've been referencing, the higher ed after COVID-19, that's available through Brightspot. I want to ask you, Elliot, is there... Anything that you have to sh to share that you have a burning need to share that you think that there is uh, a realization that we haven't talked about that our listeners need to know? Yeah, well, I'll I'll end with with one with one thing and um, because and one particularly hopeful thing. Um, because I feel like we just talked a lot, a lot of doom and gloom. Um, and I, I'll say that uh, in the last month, I've talked, to, I've talked to leaders at 61, I think now, different uh, colleges and universities. And, um, you know, the sense is that they just went through a lot of change in a short amount of time. And uh, in doing so, uh, demonstrated that higher ed can adapt, that there are, uh, you know, that, that there are very dedicated, hardworking, inventive uh, people that are driven by, driven by the mission and, um, and uh, dedicated to, you know, to finding a solution. And I, I do think the vast majority of, of, of universities are going to work through this crisis and um, and come out the other side, and uh, and you know there will certainly be downsides, but I think many will emerge stronger than before. 
because uh, because this is uh, this has really forced them to question a lot of things and rethink a lot of things and um, and interestingly enough, one of the big things that's being rethought is the role of space because I think you know people are realizing and and recognizing the value of being together in a place. And I think that, you know, while, while they're recognizing that so much can be done online and people can learn online and they can work remotely, I think the flip side of that coin is how, how much uh, space creates, you know, memorable experiences and builds relationships and builds trust. And, um, and we just did a, a national survey taking the pulse of students during the crisis and it's it's the findings really just jump off the page because the big thing they're missing is community um, and the campus culture. They're they're missing the ability to feel included in the class, to connect with mentors, to be part of activities, to um, uh, to to have a sense of belonging. And that's actually the thing they're most critical of their institutions during the crisis. They think institutions have done a great job communicating. And, uh, and and shifting courses and, and, and services, but not so great a job fostering community and belonging. And, uh, and that, is, that is what campuses do. So I'm, I'm actually really hopeful that uh, campuses and institutions can, can look at the data uh, and can be guided by uh, experts and reop- carefully reopen their campuses where it makes sense and uh, and really double down on the on the community and the culture that physical places help uh, help create. We could not have said that more effectively ourselves, Elliot Felix. I want to thank you so much for spending time with us this afternoon on the Wonder Podcast, and wish you all the very best in your pursuits moving forward in higher education. Thanks so much. It's it's been great. Uh, I mean, we we love talking about this stuff, and I feel not only lucky to you know have everybody safe and healthy, but uh, but also to have a job and to run a company that you know every day we get up and learn stuff and help people. So um, happy to share what we're learning and and uh, and hope it helps your uh, your audience. I'm sure it will. Thanks everyone for listening to the Wonder Podcast today. As we always do, the information will be available on the podcast, It's and you'll be able to find that on iTunes, on Spotify, and anywhere that you re- listen to podcasts. Thank you, and good afternoon. Good afternoon.